Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Genesis chapter 22, Genesis 22, and we're going to look at uh, Jacob and a couple of his prayers. Uh, and I really want the, kind of the idea that we're going to be looking at from this is handling hardship through prayer. So even as we kind of dive into this, um, I want you to think about, and I'm probably not going to ask you to share, and even if I do ask you to share, I, I won't make you share if you don't want to. So you can be very honest with yourself. What, what's, the, what's the biggest problem or hardship that you are dealing with right now in your life? Okay, What's just the thing in life that feels... The heaviest, the hardest, uh, the most overwhelming, the thing that maybe is on your mind the most and not in a positive way, but in a negative way, hardest thing in your life. And so we're going to look at Jacob and um, how he dealt with some of that stuff in his life. Now, you know, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, famous verses, important verses in my life, but it says, in all things, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. Um, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's part of it. But, but the key phrase I want us to think about right there for a second is the Bible tells us that we're allowed to and even commanded to in anything in your life. Anything. The big things, the small things, the, the exciting things, the hard, ugly things. All things we can and should be bringing to God. Okay, so, but we're going to specifically talk about uh, the hardest things, dealing with the hardest things that are. So here's one commentator just talking about the life of Jacob. And this is, I thought, a good, interesting, true, and almost in some sense funny quote about Jacob. He says, The narrative about Jacob portrays Israel in its earthiest and most scandalous appearance in Genesis. The narrative isn't edifying in any conventional religious or moral sense. Basically saying, if you're looking for good moral examples to teach your kids at night, probably don't go to you know the story of Jacob. Indeed, if one comes to the narrative with such an agenda, the narrative is offensive. But for that very reason, the Jacob narrative is most lifelike. It presents Jacob in his crude mixture of motives. The grandson of the promise is a rascal. And it's like, well, that kind of sounds like us most of the times, you know, a crude mixture of motives. So just a brief overview, uh, if you don't remember all your stories about Jacob, you know, from Sunday school. But So Genesis chapter 25, he's born, he grows up. And, you know, he's the younger brother, they're twins, and there's a prophecy that he's supposed to get the birthright and the blessing, but his father is going in a different direction, he's going to give it to his older brother anyway. And so Jacob is a schemer, and he figures out how to kind of make this really unfair deal with Esau to get the birthright. And then you go to chapter 27, dad is still like, I don't care what deal y'all made, I'm still going to give the blessing to your older brother, and... Jacob becomes this liar, deceiver, sneaks in, steals the blessing, so to speak, from his dad. Then he has to run away because Esau wants to kill him. Uh, He falls madly in love with this woman, and he's like, I'll work seven years for her. Dad says, great. Then he gets tricked. He's like, whatever, I'll work another seven years. Then he has two wives. That's always problematic. Then they're fighting about who's going to have the most babies and all that. Uh, So even his marriage, marriages, is, is another wrestling match, so to speak. Then he's wrestling with his father-in-law over his wages, his prosperity. He feels like he's been taken wrong. Uh, his brother-in-law's get mad. I mean, his whole life, in one sense, is one big wrestling match. But, for the most part, he keeps coming out ahead. He keeps essentially getting what he wants. I mean, so in some sense, Jacob is a self-made man. I mean, in some sense, you could say Jacob had the American dream before the American dream was a thing. He worked hard. 
he became very prosperous. He got the woman that he wanted. He got an extra woman along the way. You know, he had a whole bunch of children. But now it's time to come home because he kind of worn out his welcome with his father-in-law. It's 20 years. He's coming home, and he's got to meet Esau. Okay, so let's, let's pick up here uh, Genesis chapter 32, and let's start in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanamim, which means there's basically two camps of angels. So it's like the, the angels are camped around him. It's like God's protecting him. He knows that. He sees that. He's experienced that before. And we are going to see some kind of seeming growth or maturity in Jacob. And Jacob sent messengers before uh, him to Esau, his brother. Okay, now just a side note here. If he had wanted to, he could have found a way to sneak back into the land without Esau knowing. So there's a little bit of maturity here because it seems like he's like, no, 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 I'm going to handle this the right way. I'm going to go straight to Esau. I'm not going to try to hide. I'm going to go straight back and try to reconcile with him. That's good. Um, so he's sending his messengers, look at verse 4, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So there's some sense in which he's saying, listen, I have been so richly blessed. I've become so prosperous. You don't need to worry about me. I'm not coming back in to like make a hard claim on the blessing that dad gave me and like start taking land away from you and making you my servant. I'm happy. Let's just be friends again. Um, so look at what's going to happen and the messengers returned to Jacob we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him and Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and literally the wording there is like he's between a rock and a hard place Okay, because it's like if I go back my father-in-law really doesn't like me that could be trouble my brother-in-law doesn't like me now I got my brother, he's coming with 400 men. I remember Frank Barker preaching a sermon on this, you know, probably 20 plus years ago. And he said he didn't think that Esau was probably bringing 400 troops to wish him happy birthday. I mean, it's like when he left, Esau was saying, when our dad dies, I'm going to kill you. So he's thinking, and here he comes. Okay, It could be a royal welcome, but it seems much more likely I'm going to get killed. So look at how he responds. Okay. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, here's kind of what I want to think about today. When you face hardship in life, and, and, and listen, don't over-spiritualize this. Maybe it's a spiritual <coughs> hardship, right? Maybe you're like, I've got this sin struggle, okay? That's, that's great. Uh, but maybe your hardship is not necessarily something super spiritual. I mean, this is not super spiritual. It's... I did my brother wrong, and now he's angry, and he wants to ruin my life. And a lot of times, the hardships we face in life, they don't seem super spiritual. They just seem normal. I got family problems, right? I got work problems. I have money problems. Things that just seem very normal. It's like plenty of non-Christians got the exact same problems I do. How do you handle it? And what we're going to look at is a good way to handle problems, a better way to handle problems, and the best way to handle problems. And the good way would be practical planning. Listen, the Bible is obviously not a passive book. It's not like the most holy people are the most passive people. You know, the whole phrase, let go and let God, sounds really nice, and, but it's not biblical. Of course, God's given us a brain. God's given us hands. He's given us energy. He wants us to use those things in the service of Him. You use the brain He's given you to try to fix problems. So the good way to handle problems is just practical planning. You know, do your best with the resources you have to try to fix the situation. And that's what Jacob does at first. He basically is like, listen... 
I think Esau is coming to kill me. So at least I can do is divide the camp. Maybe he won't kill everybody. He'll just kill half of us. Okay? He's doing the best he can. Okay? But here's the thing. It doesn't work. It doesn't make him feel better. And how do I know that? Because look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to my country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that I may come, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see why I say his planning didn't work? It didn't give him peace. (laughs) He's like, I got a great plan. And again, he's this self-made man. His plans, for the most part, have usually worked out in his life. (laughs) But he's like, I don't feel that secure about my plan. Again, it's not wrong to plan. It's not wrong to prepare. It's not wrong to do practical things. It is wrong when we trust in our own practical planning. right? I mean, our job is obedience. God's job is results. So then he goes to prayer. He's still fearful. Now I want us to kind of do a little group exercise here for a second. Look at the prayer. Okay, and this would be the second way. What, what's, the, what's the good way to handle your problems? Practical planning. What's a better way to handle your pro- problems? It's through prayer. Okay, that's right. This is a spiritual retreat, so the answer has to be prayer. Okay, that's the better way. But So let's look at this prayer, verses 9 through 12. What do you see in this prayer that's good? What in this prayer do you say, man, this is good, this is right, this is noteworthy, this is something we should emulate with our lives. Humility. Okay, there's humility, right? And there's this humility saying, I'm unworthy of all this. That's great. What else? Honesty. Okay, he's very honest, okay? He's giving God the credit. There's gratitude. Hey, God, you did all this. There's a sense of gratitude. There's a sense of worship. He's talking to God as a personal God. Okay? You're not just some deistic or theistic God. You're, you're a personal God. You're the God of my father, my grandfather. Okay? Um, he claims promises. He claims promises. He quotes God's word back to God. I mean, that's one of the most important things we can do in prayer. Say, like, God, you made me these promises, these covenant promises. And so I, I'm coming in to cash in. You know, Charles Spurgeon said anytime you come to God and you kind of quote back to him a promise, it's like bringing a check that he's already signed. And you're just like, I'm here at the bank, just want to cash this check that you already signed. That's what Jacob's doing. I mean, it's really, it's a great prayer. Okay? But, okay, look at verse 13. Again, it doesn't seem to work. So he stayed there that night from what he had with him, and he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, When he saw my brother meet you and asked you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And Whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Okay, so he's sending all these presents. And this is elaborate. This is overdoing it. You know, it's 500 plus presents. 
It might be normal to send one present, but then he's, oh, wow, he's still worried. He had this time in prayer, but it didn't seem to really change anything. And just pause for a second. You ever had a time like that? You got a problem. You do your best to kind of practically handle it, and you still don't feel better. So you're like, I guess I should pray. I do work for a ministry. That'd be a good idea. And then you pray, and you try to pray a really good prayer, a biblical prayer. God, you're a good God. You blessed me. I'm trying to be humble. You get all the credit. You've made promises to bless me. I'd, I'd really like it. And then, you know, practically, what do I really want? I want to be protected from this problem I see coming. That's what he's really praying for. Look back at verse 12. Okay? I mean, excuse me. Verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Okay? But then he, he gets them praying. He's like, I don't feel any better. I don't feel any more secure. Right? I know I've had that experience. Like, I feel like I've really prayed, and yet nothing internally has changed. And I can't tell that anything externally has changed. So, back to planning. More planning. Let me do my best. Again, in and of itself, he's not doing anything necessarily sinful here, is he? Right? He's not lying. He's not being deceptive. He's trying to appease his brother. But look at verse 19. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And basically, he's using language here, kind of religious language, worship language. Maybe I can pacify him. Maybe I can be propitiated to him. Maybe with all my work and all my gifts, I can fix this situation. And it just seems like he's putting too much hope in. If I can just get right with Esau, everything will be fine. Again, even with all our right theology, have you ever been, maybe you are in right now, such a hardship where, you know, kind of your honest gut visceral reaction is, if I could just get this one problem fixed and figured out, everything in my life would be fine. If this money situation can get fixed, everything will be fine. If this is my family situation can get fixed, everything else will be fine. Right? Okay. Verse 21, so the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in camp. So at this point, he's done double duty on the practical planning. He had a really good prayer. And guess what? Practically, it seems like it's helped nothing. <laughs> he doesn't feel more at peace. And as far as he knows, nothing in his practical situation has actually changed. Verse 22, the same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. Almost certainly, he's like, i got to pray more. I tried the planning, didn't feel better. I tried praying, didn't feel better. So I tried more planning, like really good planning, didn't feel better. So what's the good way to handle problems? Practical planning, it's not bad. What's a better way? It's prayer. But what's the best way? It's prevailing prayer. You might say persevering prayer. You know, desperate prayer. Um, when you know Brian was talking about, you know, he and I praying together back in college. Some there was a guy we used to read and listen to. Some called Leonard Ravenhill. I don't know if anybody reads or listens to Leonard Ravenhill anymore. But he had this quote. It's not technically true, you know. So you have to be careful. But it, but it's it's really good because it has a seed of truth in it. You understand what I mean by that? It was it. He said, "God doesn't answer prayer." I'm like, well, that doesn't sound right. God only answers desperate prayer. And there are times in life where it seems like God doesn't just answer the perfunctory prayers. Now, some, listen, He's so gracious. Sometimes God gives us what we want, 
even before we ask him, right? But there are other times he does seem like he wants to draw us out, and it seems like that's what he's doing here with Jacob. Verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now, it's kind of a weird verse. I mean, in the exact same verse it says, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled. So it's like, he's alone, he's not alone. What does that mean? Verse 25, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of his joint as he wrestled with him. So, in one sense, this person is obviously much stronger than Jacob, because he could just do a light little tap on his leg, and it rips it out of joint. And yet, it seems like this guy is wrestling with one hand behind his back, so to speak. He's making himself weaker so that he can engage with Jacob. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. Now, y'all know where this story is going. And, and what most of the best commentators would say is, this is the angel of the Lord, this is God, this is probably the pre-incarnate Christ. So there's a sense here in, let me go, the day is coming, no man can see my face and live, that type of thing, right? Now, just remember, so pause here for a second, go back to verse 11. This whole thing started, what, what was kind of the deepest desire of Jacob's heart when this whole thing started? just want physical safety, right? Protect me from Esau. I don't want to die. I don't want to get hurt. Which is, listen, that's a good desire. Right? We're not supposed to be masochist. It's, it's good to say, I don't want physical pain. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to get tilled. I don't want to be tortured. That's a good thing. But it's not the best thing. Now, when this superhuman being is wrestling, it just rips his leg out of joint and says, hey, time to let go of me. Something has changed in Jacob. Something is deep. Because now he's like, you know what? I really don't care about physical safety anymore. I won't let loose of you until you bless me. Okay? I will not let go of you unless you bless me. Basically, you can kill me if you want to. What I really want, I want the blessing. And in some sense, again, if you study the whole life of Jacob, that's what he'd been wrestling with for his whole life. Wrestling with his brother, wrestling with his father, wrestling with his wives in some sense, wrestling with his father-in-law, wrestling with his brother-in-law, grasping after a blessing. Right? Something that would be so good, so wonderful, that it would bless his whole life and make his whole life good and prosperous and enjoyable. A deep sense of satisfaction, significance, security. And now he's finally got hold of the one who can actually give it to him. You know, Pause here for a second. If we went back to the prayer of verses 9 through 12, was there anything that you're like, this, is, this was left out. This, was, this is something missing in the prayer from verses 9 through 12. I think it's this. There was no confession of sin. There was humility. I'm unworthy of all this, right? But, but that can, can be construed as just kind of neutral, right? I'm just a normal guy. I'm not good. I'm not bad. I'm just kind of a neutral guy. And you bless my socks off. So thank you for that. But there's no real confession of sin. And so when it comes to verse 27, and the God man speaks to him and says, what is your name? This is not God seeking information, right? This, this is very much like Genesis chapter 3, God coming in the garden, Adam, where are you? Who are you? What have you done, son? He's looking for a confession of sin. And he says, my name is Jacob, which again, if you know the whole story, 
He'd been named Jacob by his mom because he was the little baby reaching out of the womb, grabbing onto the heel. And probably she named him that in a good way. It probably meant something because it, it kind of meant something about heel. Probably the name meant something like God is at your heels. God is your rear guard. God is your protector. Right? I mean, mom's not going to give her son a bad name. And yet, as he grows up and he becomes such a schemer, Esau kind of turned it into a nickname. And then, no, this is the guy that will knock your heels out from under you. He'll grab you by the heels and drag you down. He's a schemer. And that had become his whole life, this self-made man fighting and wrestling. So it's a confession of sin. Now, what's happening here? I mean, this is like Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask, one thing I seek. This is like Mary in the New Testament sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's really only one thing necessary for life. Listen to what Calvin says. This is a holy boldness. When having discharged our duty according to God's calling, we familiarly ask of him whatsoever he has promised. Since he, by binding himself to us graciously, becomes in a sense voluntarily our debtor. Here's the part I really like. Whenever we are tempted, our business is truly with him. For as all prosperity flows from his goodness, so adversity is either the rod with which he corrects our sins or the test of our faith and our patience. So let me maybe try to put that just in a little bit more modern uh, layman's language. At the very beginning, I asked you, what's the hardest thing you're dealing with in life? Maybe it's conflict between you and a family member. Maybe it's dating life, not going the way you want. Maybe it is some financial hardship disaster, right? Maybe it's a loved one, a friend is not a Christian, and that's overwhelming. Whatever it is, the real issue is always with God. If God is really sovereign as we believe he is, and he is, whether we believe he is or not, then all of our problems are ultimately always with God. You see how that works? Not that God did anything wrong, but he is, the, he is the only one that can guarantee change and fix the situation to our liking. And again, please hear me. There's nothing wrong with practical planning. The Bible is filled with exhortations to use the resources you have in legitimate ways to advance your calls and your desires. But it's just not sufficient. It's never enough in and of itself. It won't work, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. Psalm 127. Don't quit building the house, but just know that while you're building the house, all your efforts are in vain if God doesn't show up and bless it. And so there needs to be this desperate type of prayer, Lord, bless the work of my hands. Draw near, because without you, I fail. Wrestle it out with God. Um, I was talking to somebody one time. Um, had been single for many years, and you know, stuff came to outreach. It had been hard. I was talking to her at one point. I said, "You know, how's that going?" Because it'd been an issue. She said, "Well, it's uh, it's actually going a lot better." I said, "Oh, that's great." What is? She said, "I just don't think about it. I just, you know, I just, I just try not to think about it." I said, "Okay." That's, she said, "Because when I think about it, it just gets really hard." I said, "Okay. Well, are you praying about it?" She said, "No, I don't pray about it." You know, kind of almost like this. Which, let's just be honest. If you've been working with campus outreach for a long time, it's like, that's a bad answer, right? <laughs> At least lie, you know? Like, of course I'm praying about it. What's wrong with you? But she was very quick to almost kind of emphatically say, no, I never pray about it. I was like, well, why don't you pray about it? Well, because when I pray about it, I start to get really mad. I start to get really sad. I get really frustrated with God. If I just don't think about it, everything's fine. And I was like, I'm not a genius, but, but, but I don't think everything's fine. 
just by you subtracting prayer. I think that's just kind of a veneer that we like to paint over our own hearts to just, it's a survival strategy. And guys, God loves us too much as his beloved children for us just to be surviving in life. He really wants us to thrive. And please hear me. I think you know my heart and more importantly the heart of God in the Bible. I'm not talking about weird TV preacher prosperity gospel. God wants you to have a brand new Ferrari today. It's going to be sitting out in the parking lot if you just pray hard enough. I'm talking about a spiritual vitality that God does want for your life. But he doesn't seem to give it easily. He makes us wrestle. But he wants us to get to the point of desperation where even if you kill me, I'm hanging on to you. And why? What really gets us there is this realization. Imagine if everything on your prayer list, all the practical things that you're praying for, more money, more friends, more success in ministry, I mean, all the good stuff you're praying for, if God just instantly gave it to you, but you didn't really have more of Him, it wouldn't satisfy the depths of your soul. It wouldn't give you the sense of security and significance that you really were made to have. The only thing that does that is this intimate face-to-face encounter with Him. So you've got to have this wrestling prayer, this desperate prayer. There's this old Scottish guy named McIntyre, and he has this quote where he says, pray until you pray. You know, like, great, what exactly is that? <laughs> and then he explained it, he said, pray until your conscience of being heard. Right? I mean, have you ever had a time in prayer, maybe once or twice, where it's like you really wrestled in prayer and you got done praying and there was a sense of, God heard me. I, th- I feel heard. What's God going to do? I don't know. <laughs> What's He going to do? But at least I feel heard. Don't you even see that in human relationships sometimes? Okay? I, I know that I, as a husband with my wife sometimes, and, and I still don't always get this, okay? I get it a little bit better than I used to. Sometimes my wife will come to me with a problem and I immediately launch into this is an easy problem. Let me fix it. And now we're at a point in our relationship where I'm not that stupid that often. <laughs> I still am every once in a while. And she, sometimes she's gracious enough just to start, she's like, don't do it. That's not what I want. I just want you to listen. I just want you to hear. I just want to sense that you care. And there's something good in that. There's something right. And that's something that the human heart wants. I want to know that God is real. He's personal. And even with all my sinfulness, He still loves me. He's still drawing near. He's still, listen, guys, in some sense, this whole passage is really more a passage about God pursuing us than us pursuing Him. Yeah, and, and you know this. Anytime you're really pursuing God, it's because He gave you the grace to really pursue Him. It started with His pursuit. So, uh, look at what happens. Verse 28. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. I mean, this is an identity change. I'm changing the nature of your identity, that the core of who you are. I mean, a lot of people would say this is the Old Testament conversion of Jacob. Real change, real breakthrough. You're not going to be a self-made man anymore. You're going to be a God-made man. God, I mean, what does Israel really mean? It means God reigns, God rules, God provides, God protects. God is the winner. But you're attached to me, Jacob, so you get to win with me. Okay. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, 
and yet my life has been delivered. So he's broken through, he's met with God. Okay. Listen to this quote by Derek Kidner. He now has a hunger for God himself. Conflict brought to a head the battling and the groping of a lifetime. It was against him, not Esau or Laban, that he had been pitting his strength. And after the maiming, combativeness had been turned into dogged dependence. And Jacob emerged broken, maimed, and blessed. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for us. Dogged dependence on God that leads to a brokenness. I mean, this is real humanity. It's like, I, if you don't show up and bless me today, I'm going to screw my whole life up. Do you really believe that? I don't think we do. I mean, theologically, I think we believe that. I can't do anything about it. Practically, I don't think we really believe that. It's like, I'm doing fine, God, until I get into a massive problem, then I need you. And part of the whole idea of a good prayer life is less and less to go through the motions. And guys, that's hard when you're doing the same thing every day, right? For it not to just turn into going through the motions. To keep it kind of alive and fruitful and in a, a little, at least a tiny sense of wrestling. God, I really need you today. I really need you to show up today. I really need you to bless me, even in all these mundane tasks that I've done before. I don't want to do it in my own strength. I want to do it in your supernatural provision. That kind of wrestling. Uh, flip over to Hosea chapter 12 for just a second. And do not be ashamed if to find Hosea you have to go to the table of contents. Otherwise, it's one of those books that is a minor prophet and it's short enough that if you just try to flip around, you might go past it more than once. But go to Hosea chapter 12 and let's go to verse 4 and you get a little commentary on the situation. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4. Speaking of Jacob, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Okay, So how did he wrestle? Because we're like, Olin, this is kind of interesting, but it's also kind of weird. I mean, I'm talking about a physical wrestling match, and that's not what it looks like for us today in 21st century America. Okay, so what does it look like to wrestle with God in prayer? He wept and he sought his favor. Does that mean we have to literally shed tears every time we pray? No, it doesn't mean that. But it, a sense of desperation. That I'm seeking your favor, and I'm so desperate for your favor. I want your favor. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm really, really hungry for your favor, for your smile, for your blessing, for your nearness. Okay. Um, Matthew Henry. Jacob wrestling like a champion and yet weeping like a child. There's this humble boldness. I'm not worthy to be here. You ought to kill me. I ought to be in hell already. And yet, you've saved me, you've blessed me, you've called me in this relationship, and you want to give me more. And I don't want to live a small life for you, God. I was praying with a group of guys one time about some ministry opportunities, and one of the guys in the group prayed, God, give us the success that makes you famous. It's a great way to pray. I want you to bless my socks off, not ultimately for my name's sake and glory, but for your name's sake this kind of wrestling prayer. Now, so that, that's the goal. That's the goal. The goal of 31 days is don't just go through the motions. Engage with God. Depend on God. Engage with God in a fresh way, in an emotionally real way. Now, but what's the main problem? Okay, like I said, I think the one thing that was different in Jacob's prayer the first time compared to the second time was there was no real confession of prayer the first time. 
excuse me, confession of sin the first time. And then the second time there was confession, but did you notice, it wasn't like he just confessed a couple of sinful incidents, like, well, I did lie to Daddy that one time. He just said, no, no, my whole nature, my whole nature is wicked. I mean, this is like Psalm 51, verse 5. I was conceived in sin. I've been sinful since birth. My whole nature is sinful. Even my best deeds are shot through with sin. Brokenness. Right? It's not, just, it's not just like I screw up every once in a while. It's like there's this undercurrent in my heart. Even now that I'm in Christ, it still flows. The good I want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I do want to do is the thing I don't want to do. It's this ongoing battle. Now let's just think for your first second. Just almost done hyper-practically about your own personal prayer life. Again, I'm not going to ask you this year. Maybe Brown will after I leave. Yeah, I'm not interested. For some of us, like, I know how important prayer is, but if you follow me around, you wouldn't believe I know how important prayer is because I'm a real spotty. It ain't happening every day. I mean, I was talking to a guy very recently. He's in his 40s, worked at Campus Outreach ever since he graduated college, and he's been going through some hard stuff, but he's talking about part of it that says, yeah, I can spend time with God in over a week. That's terrible. But unfortunately, I wasn't like, I can't believe it! Because unfortunately, that kind of stuff happens far too often, even for people in full-time ministry. And then there may be others who are like, man, I never miss a day. I am ruthlessly consistent. Because I'm ruthlessly consistent in every area of my life. I'm just that boring, right? I'm just, I'm consistent in every area of my life. It's like, well, how is your personal time, Lord? Ah, pretty dry, pretty much a lot of box checking. When was the last time you really met with the Lord and you feel like, what does that even mean, right? Or maybe it's the roller coaster. Some days are hot, some days are cold. But here's the problem. Even on our rest days, there's still a sense of how sinful we are, right? I mean, I know I've had this experience. Tell me if you can identify with me. That maybe you wake up early one morning. I was very loud. Um, <laughs> You wake up really early one morning and you just have longer time alone in the Word, in prayer, work, and it feels really good. I mean, it, it, it's intellectually stimulating. You feel like you're learning something new. You feel like you really are worshiping the Lord and engaging and you're, you're pouring out your heart and you're praying. You're, you're doing everything. It feels like, I really met with God today. And then sometime later in the day, maybe by lunch or that night, you're back to wrestling with the same old sin you're always wrestling with. Whether that's greed or fear or worry or lust or anger or whatever it is, you're like, I just felt like I really had this like encounter with Jesus a few hours ago. And now I feel like I'm not changed at all. Anybody else ever had that? I mean, that's the biggest problem, guys, is in this ongoing battle with sin. And that's why we need prayer so much. But that's why in the heart of prayer we got to remember our prayer life, in some sense, when we're doing it right, it's not so much about me pursuing God. It's really about me experiencing God pursuing me. And, and the biggest, clearest picture of that, this is a good one. It's a really good one, right? Jacob's like, I want to have a little prayer time. And God said, yeah, 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 I want to talk to you too. And he tackled him, right? God said, we're not having any more going through the motions prayer. We're about to have a full-on engagement. And the best picture of that is the Lord Jesus Christ leaving His Father's throne above, coming to earth, wrestling with our sin and our shame at the cross, wrestling with Satan, 
hand to hand, so to speak, at the cross, and in some sense wrestling with the Father. Right? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jacob said, God, I won't let loose of you until you bless me. What Jesus said that was so beautiful, wrestling on the cross with the Father, was, I'm not going to let loose. I'm not going to come down from the cross until you bless my people. And he stayed there. And guys, that's what ought to give us the confidence. Even in the midst of our sinfulness and our ongoing struggle to just come back, to never not keep coming back to the lover of our souls who is pursuing us in our pursuit of him. Okay? So let me pray, and then if anybody has any comments or questions, we can do that. So, Lord Jesus, you are so good. Uh, you're the perfect model for our prayer life. Lord, just thinking about you walking around on planet Earth and how frequent you were in the place of prayer. And you had no indwelling sin to wrestle with. I pray that we would all believe that our all our problems, the big ones and the small ones, that they ultimately get solved at your throne in our relationship with you. That that is the real work. That other things are important. Other things are good. But the best thing is the one-on-one, intimate communion wrestling match with you and would you grow us up into that kind of faith that kind of pursuit that kind of wrestling match and that kind of resting in the finished work of Christ I pray all this in Christ's name Amen Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs If you have any questions for Olin please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org Thank you.